If you know me well enough, you know that one of my um, theological pet peeves is the depiction of Jesus in religious art and film. It's as if he's one of the lost members of the Bee Gees or something. You know, he's always this Caucasian Euro dude. Uh, you know, he's kind of this hippie guy that if you were to see him at the mall, you'd kind of gather your kids in closer, and he's always throwing up these weird hand signs and just a little off-centered. And if you know me, you also know that another one of my uh, theological pet peeves is found in the teaching of the prosperity gospel, and here we found a video showing both. But I think this video does well at illustrating modern man's issues, I guess is the best way to put it, concerning the miraculous. It does well at showing how easily we misunderstand God's supernatural working in our world and in our lives, particularly as it pertains uh, to the New Testament. So there's basically two um, schools of thought that most people will fall into one or the other. On the one side, you've got kind of the humanist mindset that says that miracles do not happen. You can't prove them. I don't believe in them at all. And the other side is that miracles are all around us. As a matter of fact, God, as it were, is some kind of cosmic genie who's sitting up in heaven willing to dole out all of our requests. And each of them is seen as a miracle. This could range anywhere from providing a private jet to preferred parking at the mall. So it's no wonder then that when we are confronted with passages concerning the miraculous like we will be this morning, that we have a hard time understanding exactly all that is going on. You see, um, because, um, because of our self-centeredness, we will almost always miss the big picture. So this morning, before we dive in to Mark chapter 7, I want to establish exactly what a miracle is and what the purpose of a miracle is. The purpose of a miracle uh, primarily was for two things. One was to establish the authority of a speaker, and the second was to show and illustrate God's redemptive plan. And what we know is that miracles were never arbitrary. They were never a trick, and they were never a show. You never see Jesus doing a Vegas-style kind of pen and teller magic show. You never see Moses doing that or Elijah or anything like that. They were never to impress people. It was always to establish uh, and illustrate God's redemptive plan. Now, it may sound strange to some of us, but the word miracle actually does not appear in the New Testament. You may find that word in uh, some English translations, but the word that's often translated as miracle in English uh, is three Greek words, and the one that's most pertinent this morning is the one that John used almost exclusively in his gospel, and that one is uh, the word that we would translate as sign. It points to something bigger. There's something more going on uh, in the event where a miracle is recorded more so than just meeting the felt needs of the people who happen to be present. Charles Spurgeon says this, The miracles of Christ are remarkable for one fact, namely that they are none of them unnecessary. And writing on the same subject, Timothy Keller has noted this, 
We modern people think of miracles and the suspen- as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. That's one of the most common definitions for miracle is the suspension of the natural order because we cannot explain through natural means what's going on. But what we have to understand is when miracles are taking place, God is actually putting creation or moving towards putting creation back into its natural state, back into a place where it was before the fall. I think a good example of this can be found uh, in the Exodus account. In Exodus 13 and 14, we see that through the use of miracles, Moses has caused Pharaoh to uh, allow the people of Israel to go free. The Hebrews are free. And no sooner are they out the back door and on their way to the promised land, Pharaoh changes his mind and he goes after them. And he finds them at the Red Sea and they're trapped. Now, a supernatural event does in fact happen. God parts the waters so that the Hebrew people can move through safely. But let's not get tied up in, in, uh, in just these people. You see, as Francis Schaeffer said, there's two ways that we can look at Scripture. We can reduce it down to the lower story where the primary characters are those people that we see and God is kind of a benevolent, peripheral subject in the matter who is doing something nice for some people that he might happen to like. Or we can take a look at it from the upper story, and it's there that we find the real meaning of the miracle. It's true that the people who were present that day benefited greatly from this miracle, but this miracle was not simply to save these people that were there. God had a bigger plan. You see, he had promised to Abraham that through his line would come one, we know that to be Jesus, who would ultimately redeem the world. When God performs this miracle in Exodus, it is not simply to help some folks out. It is to preserve his promise that he had made to Abraham, that he had made to Eve at the very beginning when the fall first took place. So this morning, let's keep in mind that when we look at miracles, we want to try to keep from reducing it down to the lower story. We want to always keep a perspective on God's bigger plan. So as we look and continue in our series um, on uh, the man of action, where uh, we see the words of Mark, the gospel of Mark, which is largely uh, old sermons from Peter. And uh, Mark is writing to a Gentile crowd. He's writing to a Gentile people. And he's going through uh, the things that Jesus did that um, he thinks they need to know or God inspired him to write uh, so that they could understand exactly what God's redemptive plan was. So in Mark 7, 31 through 37 is where we are today. It says this, Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him And the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephphatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly. 
His tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, Everything he does is wonderful. He makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Let's begin. I think the best approach to this is stepping through each verse. So let's begin by looking at at the setting that we find in verse 31. It says, Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. I think it was last week uh, concerning genealogy uh, where it was said that nothing, nothing in Scripture is there by accident. And just as with, uh, with genealogy, perhaps with geography or Jesus' travel itinerary, we tend to think to ourselves, well, what's the point? Why is this here? And we need to understand that there's actually great significance in knowing uh, Jesus' path and Jesus' plan here. Because you see, God does not waste his words. This is here for a reason. God's revelation, Scripture, uh, is God speaking to us. And as such, nothing in it is just arbitrary. Nothing in it is just useless information. And here's what I mean. If we will look at the geography here, if we will look at his travel itinerary, we see that he left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee. This tells us that his trip was very intentional. It's about a 120-mile trip by foot. And it would be like us traveling from Asheville to Atlanta via Richmond, Virginia. This is important because we are often charged as Christ followers with having too narrow a view on salvation. Now, typically what people mean by that is they don't like the fact that we believe that there is only one way and that that is Christ. Um, But they believe in only one way too, so they really don't have a legitimate cause uh, to complain about us there. But this is important because Jesus is going far into notorious Gentile territory. He is broadening, he is opening the door to salvation wide by moving into this region where um, he is going to be surrounded by people who were not his own. And, And I say that because we think, we think racial tension is a thing in our culture. The Jews kind of cornered the market on elevating themselves far above any other race of people. So for a good Jewish man to be traveling this far said a tremendous amount about Jesus and his mission and his plan and what he was going to do. He left Tyre, which had a fairly large uh, Jewish population, but it was primarily a Gentile region, and goes into Sidon, which is almost exclusively Gentile. And when, we, when he gets there, we notice that he's met by a crowd. Everyone already knows who he is. Last week, we looked at verse 24. It says, Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. He was known. He was a Jew who had left Israel and was now in Gentile country, and everybody's already a buzz about him. And the first thing that comes to my mind is how in the world did they know? You know, I can understand if it was today uh, with Facebook and Instagram, Jesus shows up and all of a sudden everybody's hashtagging get your blessing or something like that. That makes sense in today's world, but then, you know, that's... A lot of work and efforts being put into this story going out. 
And the way we know uh, how that it, it, it had already spread to this point is that Jesus had already been here previously. Think about his first um, kind of act of ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, he goes through the temptation in the desert. And after he gets out of that, after he comes out of that and before the Sermon on the Mount, he is in Galilee. And while he's in Galilee, he leaves, goes across the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Ten Towns or the Decapolis. So he's been there before once. And then we see that he makes another trip in between these two times. And you should remember this story well. This is the time when he... um, crosses the Sea of Galilee. He's in this region, and he's confronted by a man who is demon-possessed. This is the guy that nobody could chain, nobody could calm down, or anything like that. He heals the man, sends the demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs, you know, you know the story, run down the hill into the sea and are drowned. And the people's reaction is one of fear. They actually ask him to leave, except for the demon-possessed man, the formerly demon-possessed man. He says, can I go with you? Jesus said, no, actually, I want you to stay, and I want you to tell everyone what has been done for you. And we can assume safely by the reaction Jesus gets now in Mark 7 that this formerly demon-possessed man that was healed by Jesus had done his job and done his job well. That brings us to the subject of today's um, miracle. In verse 32, It says, a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. I want to take just a minute and focus on something that I think is important. It's not really part uh, of what I'm trying to say here. But notice the primary or the central figure in this. Jesus is the only one ever named. And all we know uh, from the deaf man is that he's an anonymous man who Jesus healed. All we know about the people around them is that they are anonymous people who knew that healing could be found in Christ. You know, how much could we learn that today? How much could we learn from the fact that these people were not known by man, but known only to God? You know, if we had written the Gospels, we would have wanted their names included for fear that they might get upset that we didn't mention their names. But here we see people content with being anonymous and given the glory to Christ, giving the glory to Jesus where it belongs. But the deaf man, we hear that. Um, I don't know when you think of people with disabilities, you know, what comes to your mind. But what we need to understand is that in his life, in his context, and where he was, is much worse than what we would see today. Perhaps the most tolerant group of people in that region would have been the Jews of the time, the ones who would have been the most compassionate and sympathetic to his problem. But rabbinical teaching during the time, which was the most tolerant view that you would have found in the region, rabbinical teaching at the time taught that if a man was deaf and mute, he should be put in the category of the insane because you could not prove, in fact, that he wasn't because of his inability to speak. So at best, this man would have been classified as insane. He would have not had a high position in society. To the Jews, he would have been viewed very unclean. And that's the best he had to hope for. In the Greco-Roman world in which he actually lived, deafness was just cause for infanticide. You could literally kill your child for being deaf 
with no legal ramifications of it because simply they were too inconvenient for society. So this is where he finds himself. That's his lot in life. He is despised and basically rejected and seen as a burden and an inconvenience. But something very interesting is said here. Um, It says that he has a speech impediment, which would imply that at one point, this man probably had his hearing, learned to talk a little bit, and had lost it at some point. But this word speech impediment, uh, it's translated from one Greek word into the two English words, speech impediment. But that word is magilalos. You say, well, okay, big deal. What's, What's the big deal with what Greek word is being used here? That's important because if we look, we see that that word mogilalos was only used one time in the New Testament, which, of course, is right here. Okay, so what? Well, it's also only used one time in the Greek Septuagint, which was the, uh, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the one that would have been the most commonly used uh, in Israel during that time. And in The Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see that this word is only used one time as well. And that time is found in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That still may not be a very big deal, but we need to understand that since Mark was written to Gentiles, Mark rarely ever used Old Testament imagery. The people just would not have cared. But when he does use Old Testament imagery, it is always a load-bearing beam. It always has huge and significant purpose. In Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is prophesying about the time in which the Messiah would be there. And one of the signs that the Messiah would use to demonstrate that he was, in fact, who he said he was, is that he would go into the Gentile region, specifically into the region of Lebanon, which is where Tyre, Sidon, and the Ten Towns is located. And there he will be uh, able to perform these miracles, specifically the miracle of making the mute sing for joy. There's no mistaking that Mark, when he wrote this gospel, is pointing back to this time Uh, in the Old Testament where the Messiah is being prophesied and that he would come and do these things in the very region and territory where we see Jesus doing these things now. Again, we're seeing the door being widened and we see that even in the Old Testament, Gentile salvation was already in God's mind. He was already moving in that direction. So you've got these people and... They're Gentiles. They understand the issue between Jew and Gentile. But they also recognize that the only solution to their problem was found in Jesus. And so they approach him, and Jesus responds. We see this in verse 33 and 34. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own finger, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Take a moment and consider this man, uh, Jesus' actions. The first thing we see is he doesn't heal from a distance. He calls the man out from the crowd. 
Think for a minute if you were in that man's shoes. You know there's a big deal centered around this man. You don't know what's going on because nobody can communicate with you. Your whole life, you've been viewed as a burden. And now suddenly, this guy that everyone's making a big deal about calls you out from the crowd. And notice his method. Last week, Jesus healed from a distance, spoken word. He wasn't even present when the demons were uh, taken out of the girl. This time, it's very physical. It's physical touch. He puts his fingers in the man's ears and his finger on the man's tongue. Consider for a minute that that was you, like I said a minute ago. What is Jesus communicating here? Just stop and think about this for a minute. There was no sign language. American sign language wasn't a thing or anything like that. The man could not communicate. But here's Jesus touching the very area of this guy's problem and seeing it healed. It's a great display of compassion. And it's interesting the method he used because, as I said before, Jesus could have healed from a distance. He could have spoken the word. And in so doing, he would have avoided uncleanness because if you touch someone unclean, you then yourself are unclean. But rather than doing that, Jesus chose rather to go the unclean route and to touch this man. It's not the first time he's done it either. We see it where he touches a man with leprosy in Mark 1.40 or the dead girl, Jairus' daughter in Mark 5.41. To do so for a Jew would have been, um, would have been unthinkable. Yet, we see among the unclean that's one of Jesus' preferred methods. He's communicating great amounts of compassion here to these people. And as is the case in the other miracles, the healing is miraculous. There's no doubt that what took place was a work of God. Listen to verse 35. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Instantly, this happened. My second son, Silas, we noticed early on that he was having difficulty in pronouncing his words. Uh, he just couldn't quite pick up um, on speaking. So we took him to the doctor and did that whole thing. Come to find out, he was totally deaf in one ear and only had about 10% of hearing in the other ear. And what he could hear sounded like it would sound to us uh, if we were underwater. So he's pronouncing his words that way. And it, he only needed tubes in his ears. So we had those put in. And pretty quickly we noticed that he was responding to sounds that he had been around his whole life in a much different way. But it wasn't instant. It took a while for the hearing to come back. It took a while for the speech to catch up. We had to do speech therapy and all of that. That is not the case here. The man did not suddenly have to deal with noises that he was unfamiliar with. He immediately was perfect in his hearing and perfect in his speech. And stop and think for a minute what that meant for this guy. It's more than just the physical healing that took place. You see, his whole identity had been tied up in this infirmity that he had had for who knows how long. Everybody knew him. His identity was that of a deaf man and then Jesus. I mean, what do you think was said about him after that? 
How did that change his identity? How did that change how society as a whole perceived him? Then we get to a tough part in this. It says, a man had been made whole, but a healing had taken place, but, verse 36, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. That's kind of a tough command, I think. I mean, why in the world would Jesus not want people to spread the news of what had just happened? I mean, you would think that in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, 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 getting the message out, this would be one of the best things to do is to tell people to go out and tell everyone what's going on. But the answer to this command is actually kind of simple. You see, they did not have the complete story. To them, Jesus was nothing more than a miracle worker. He had some power. They sought this power out, but that's really all they knew. That's hard for us to comprehend because we have the full story today. But even then, the apostles didn't even have the whole story. We know that they were even going to experience severe doubt because they did not know who Jesus truly was. In fact, until we get to the resurrection, we notice that most, pretty much nobody knew Jesus for who he truly was. So what Jesus is doing here is he's step by step revealing himself as who he is. And you would think that people would just automatically cling to that and believe it, but we know that's not the case. And sometimes Jesus has to chip away piece by piece by piece at, at cold and dead hearts before the message is ever truly known and understood for what it really is. You see, a half-truth is never the full gospel. A half-truth is always a cult. So when Jesus commands these people not to tell what's going on, he's not holding anybody back. He's not necessarily withholding information. What we see is it's a great act of compassion because this half-truth can be very damning and damaging to them. It's not until we get to Mark 15, 39 that we see a Gentile really beginning to get it, and that's at the crucifixion of Jesus where a Roman soldier said, truly this man is the Son of God. So God, in his mercy, Jesus in his mercy is saying, do not tell what you have seen because the full story is not yet known. But what they did see and what they did have amazed them. Verse 37, they were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Notice the crowd's reaction. They're amazed. They cannot believe that this has happened. And the reason that's interesting is because in that time, there was no shortage of charlatans out there willing and able to take advantage of people, promising all types of miracles. Uh, one, one such story is this traveling itinerant healer would mix blood from a white rooster with honey and then would have the people apply it to their eyes for three days in a row, and on the third day, they were supposed to gain sight. Of course, by day three, he was gone. And we also know that there was great messianic expectation during this time. The Jews knew that the clock on the Messiah coming was ticking and that he had to come in this time 
frame here that Jesus finds himself in, and there was no shortage of people willing to capitalize on that and, uh, you know, portray themselves as false messiahs, or as real messiahs, but they were false messiahs. And, of course, they knew that one of the, uh, one of the things Messiah would do would be miraculous work, so they would always try to manufacture something to make it look like that. And people had gotten pretty good at spotting a fake and when Jesus comes on the scene and they actually see something that is undeniably a miracle, they are amazed by it. And they, their proclamation is this, and very right. It says, everything he does is wonderful. That should sound familiar to us. Everything he does is wonderful. Think back to Genesis 1. God has created the entire universe and he makes this statement. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And when we're speaking of the Creator among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we're speaking of the Creator, we're speaking of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds everything together. Tim Keller mentions that miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe, and to wonder. Jesus is exposing himself more and more as the God-man who had come to rescue the world, to redeem the world, and these people are getting a little taste of it now, and they can't help but be amazed at what they see. So that's the story. That's Mark 7, 31 through 37. And there we have it. I mean, that's a pretty good Sunday school story, I suppose. It's that if we refuse to look at it from the perspective of the upper story. You see, as I mentioned in the beginning, two ways we can look at this. The lower story, it's all about people. It's all about their felt needs. It's God in the is being this kind of cosmic genie in a bottle there to provide for his people these felt needs and things that they might need. Or we can look at it from the upper story where God has got a purpose and a plan in everything he does, that God never performs an arbitrary miracle. Remember the purpose of a miracle is to explain and illustrate God's redemptive plan. Consider the types of miracles that we see Jesus using. He gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and life to the dead. Who among us, apart from the work of God in our lives, were not deaf to his word? Who among us were not blind to his actions in this world? Who among us, apart from Christ, were not dead to God? You see, as we look at God's redemptive plan and what he's illustrating in these miracles, we see that there's a very real spiritual connection. The problem is, however, is that the, when he healed these people physically, they knew their problem. They knew they could not hear. They knew they could not see um, or whatever the case may be. Our problem is that we, I don't know that we even know it sometimes. You know, we, we are so dead to God that we don't see our need for a miracle, it is certainly more difficult to see a sinner saved uh, than it is to perform 
a miraculous physical healing. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 5 where, you know, he heals the paralytic, but before he heals the guy, he says, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees were infuriated by this because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be God by making that statement, but they knew that the difficult thing was not in healing the individual's physical needs, but in healing their spiritual needs. You see, we find ourselves in a condition of spiritual deadness, and it's called sin. And sin is not merely a behavior. I know society and culture would have us believe that what it all boils down to is our environment and things like that, which it may play a part, but we are all born with this incurable disease that causes us to be dead to God. It is not a behavior. Rather, it is our very nature. And to fix this requires a miracle. And because it is our, our nature, it is also our identity. Apart from Christ, we are these things that we are a slave to. And the band can come on up. We find our identity in the things that bind us, the things we can't get away from. Our identity becomes our sin. Our identity becomes lazy, proud, glutton, greedy, cheater, adulterer, murderer, homosexual, liar, addict, or gossip. And the question is, are we desperate for healing? Or are we satisfied with our identity being these things? Do we even know that we need this healing? You know, we may try to mask these things. We may celebrate them as normal. We may pretend that they're really not that bad. But at the end of the day, our identities as sinners are killing us and they're dragging us down. And there's really only two choices that we have when it comes to seeing this healed in our lives. The first one is divine accomplishment. That's just a theological term that means Jesus paid it all. We can look to him for our healing or self-repair. We can try to do it ourselves. We do this by wearing the mask and pretending that the problem's not as serious as, we, as, as, it, as it really is to pretend that we're not really slaves of it or that perhaps that we have some kind of control over it. We may, again, like I said, celebrate it as a perfectly legitimate way to live our lives, or we may try very hard to get rid of this in our lives, but we, just like the deaf man, are stuck with a condition that we cannot cure ourselves. We will never find relief. We will never find wholeness apart from Christ. Paul says this concerning those who are now in Christ in Colossians 2, 6 through 12. He says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ, for it is Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Listen to verse 10. So you also are complete. You're made whole through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision 
the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. We are made whole only due to our union with Christ and what he has done for us. And when our nature changes, when we go from being sinner to saint, our identities change. We go from being lazy, proud, glutton, greedy, cheater, adulterer, murderer, homosexual, liar, addict, or gossip to being child of the living God. You see, the miracle that we looked at today is looking towards a wholeness that would only come through Jesus Christ. This is God's redemptive plan. So this morning, during our time of response, if this is some things that you've never considered, we'll have some leaders over here uh, on this side, and I'll be right over here. Uh, we're, we're willing to talk to you, pray with you, whatever the case may be. But also, during this time of response, we will be celebrating communion, something that we do here every week, where we look at the ultimate miracle that has brought our healing, the price that was paid so that we could be made whole, which is Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. So the question I leave us with is this. What is your identity? Are you still a slave to the sin that is controlling your life? Or are you a child of the living God who has been made whole through your union with Christ who healed you? Are we desperate to be made whole or are we quite all right where we are as a slave to the thing that is killing us? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that not only did you create us, God, but you created us for fellowship with you. Lord, open our hearts to your redemptive work in our lives. Lord, help us as we go through our days, God, then, after you have made us whole, being salt and light, being the anonymous people who are willing to bring others to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray.